on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciple told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, according to Jewish tradition, even today, when someone dies, they have to be buried before the next Sabbath. And so in the case of Jesus, when he died on the cross, it was really important because it was the eve of the Sabbath. And as soon as the sun goes down, the new Sabbath day begins. And so they were rushing to get him down from the cross and into a tomb before the sun set the day of his execution because they wanted to keep the tradition of burying the dead before the Sabbath begins. And so there's a lot implied in that story about how uh, Joseph of Arimathea gave the grave and so forth. And the idea was that, that they needed to move quickly. Um, the traditional sites in the Holy Land where this occurred both suggest by the lay of the land that the tomb was very near the place of execution. It, I mean, like the distance would be less or equal to the distance between where I'm standing and the doors at the back of the sanctuary. So in a sense, uh, it happened very quickly because there was not much time. This is why then when they return on the Sunday morning, the day after the Sabbath, uh, the women are carrying spices and things because they haven't finished preparing his body for burial and they want to finish what they started. So with this tradition in mind, the question is, is well, well, how do they deal with the morning and you know, all this? Well, in Jewish tradition, after someone is buried, they spend a week uh, mourning. There's a whole process that they go through, but there's a period of mourning that uh, is, is called ovulate, or it, what it's known as among English-speaking Jews is sitting shiva. Now, sitting shiva is characterized by all those who have experienced the death of a loved one going to the home of that person or the immediate family and those who are the closest family and friends joining them in this home for seven days of grief and mourning, sitting Shiva. It's somewhat private, but 
in that it is not an open and public. So where we would have visitation at the funeral and all the people we know or anyone who is concerned for us would come and greet us in the greeting line at the funeral home and pass by the, the body of the beloved. Well, that's not the way the Jewish tradition works. Rather, the bodies are taken immediately to the grave uh, before the um, Sabbath, and then the mourning happens in their home for a week after. Sitting Shiva. Now, this is one of those things that's in Scripture and is just understood, even though it isn't said in so many words. What the disciples and the, my notes are in error because they said 12 apostles, but we already know one of them wasn't there that day. So there's 11 apostles and a variety of other people who are disciples of Jesus who are all sitting Shiva. They're all in a room in a home. They're all in a home sharing refreshments, mourning and crying. And in their tradition, Jews aren't as hung up with expressions of emotions as we tend to be. We frozen chosen, we like to keep a stiff upper lip and not express our mourning and grief in overt ways. It even seems like a sign of weakness to us, but this is entirely the opposite with the Jewish tradition. The fact is, is in this room on the evening following his death and resurrection, they were sitting Shiva, and there was a lot of weeping and wailing and moaning and crying, and it was all considered normal. They would have thought something was wrong with you if you sat there and didn't emote this incredible pain. At this point on Sunday evening, a few of the women have said they've seen Jesus and a couple of the apostles have said they've seen an empty tomb. But at this point, there may have been, you know, 50 or 60 people in that room and most of them have no idea the enormity of what is about to happen. They have no idea. And then because they're under pressure to remain hidden, given the fact that it's open season on the disciples of Jesus, they've locked the doors. And the author wants us to know that the doors are locked. The windows are closed. You know, they would have had wooden shutters or something. And so the place is locked up tight. They're all in there grieving and mourning. Again, it's not an abnormal thing. So people wouldn't have thought strange that they were all in their home uh, grieving and mourning because they wouldn't necessarily know who it was they were grieving. But it happens. And then Jesus appears. And the author wants us to understand that the doors are locked, the windows are shuttered, and Jesus is there. The author wants us to know that he's also 100% there in the flesh. And this is why he invites them to look at the wounds in his hands and to probe his side if they need to, because he is both immaterial in some way that we can't comprehend because of the resurrected form of him. And the doors don't make any difference. And yet he's as real and physically present to them as anyone else in the room. This is a bit of a mystery to us, but it's also something we can look forward to after our resurrection. You know, we can go visit our friends and we don't have to worry about whether the door's locked or not. So, if you were among those people, 
you might have experienced like them, great grief and sorrow and pain and tears and wailing and, and, and the pitiable sort of misery that people feel when something horrible and permanent has occurred and they're having to adapt their lives to this change. And then suddenly this person who appears to be the one you're mourning and grieving is standing in your midst mysteriously. Then you go from being full of grief and sorrow to terror. It says they thought he was a ghost. Maybe we're thinking we're sophisticated people, not like those ancient people, and we wouldn't call him a ghost. I don't know what you'd call him, but if you weren't expecting that any more than they were, you'd be spooked. So you can call it whatever you want, but I'm pretty sure if I was in the room, I would be pretty terrified by what I was seeing. And then he says, peace be with you. Now, I want to spend a second on this, and, and this might seem amusing to you, but there's a point. In many cases in Scripture, the English translations are inadequate. There are, too many, there are too many cases where Greek and Hebrew have a bigger vocabulary than us, and there are ways in which they describe things in the original languages that we don't get in English. This is one of those cases. When he says, peace be with you, that could have been shalom, which is a very normal greeting. In the, if you go to Israel today and you meet someone, you know, just walking the streets and you sort of nod your head at them, they might say shalom. It's just a greeting. Hi, how you doing? Peace. These are not the words Jesus used. What he said that we've translated to peace be with you was more like Father, I know they're scared out of their wits. Grant them peace. So the first thing he says to them is a, is a prayer or a blessing of peace. See, he knows how terrified they are and upset they are. And so he doesn't walk in the room and go, surprise, April Fools. That would be silly. And it would be kind of offensive to them. And it would maybe even make them disbelieve. But just like Mary in the garden was having trouble putting it all together until Jesus said her name in that old familiar way, Mary. And suddenly she knows it's him. In the same way, their shepherd is standing in their midst. He knows they've gone from grief and mourning to terror. And he says, Father, take care of them. They're going through a shocker right now. And by that they know because this is their Lord. This is the way their shepherd has always cared for them. And they recognize him by the way he cared for them. And so it's important that we hear it in that context. You see, all of us, if we get right down to it, are best known by our scars, by the things we say. As you get to know me, and I only use myself as an example because it's easy, but as you get to know me over the years, someday somebody might say, well, I heard your preacher said, and you'll immediately say, nah, he'd never say anything like that. On the other hand, he might start babbling about some ridiculous thing that he thinks is hilarious in the middle of a sermon, and we could believe you if you said he said that, but would never believe that he said this. And that's the point, is we know people by the scars and the things they say, their idioms, Right? We know people by the tone they use when they talk to us versus how they might talk to a total stranger. We, we recognize them in all of that. 
And so Jesus, in immediate matter of seconds, appears before them and then does all the things that make them okay so that they recognize him and they're at peace. He's a good shepherd. Then he says, peace be with you again. Again, it's another prayer. He, he understood that he's just put their systems through quite a shock and he's not done yet. And so he says, okay, Lord, I'm praying that they're going to be okay despite the fact that I've just appeared from the dead and I've just come through closed doors and I'm alive. Lord, help them swallow this. Help them wrap their minds around this. And then after that, he says again, Lord, now I'm getting ready to tell them some stuff that's going to really blow their minds and I'm not done yet. Lord, please help them. Here it comes. And then he says, as the Father has sent me, now I'm going to send you. All right, let's just time out in the story for a second and think about what he just said. He just appeared to them when they all thought he was dead. The executioners were sure of it. And everyone who witnesses death was certain that he was dead. Now he's in their midst behind locked doors and shuttered windows, alive and in the flesh. And he has already scared the daylights out of them, but they've kind of begun to accept it. And then he says, oh, and now as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. Now, how would you interpret that? What? You want me to do what you did? You're saying that now that the Father has worked his will through you and it involved death and resurrection, you're going to send me into the world to do the same thing? Do you think they'd be a little shocked? Would you be a little shocked? But it gets better yet. Because now you know why I said, Lord, you're going to have to help them with this. Father, you've got to get them ready because here comes the biggie he breathes on them the holy spirit and it doesn't mean he blew them a kiss okay he did the same word that is used in genesis to describe the breath of life that god breathed into the first man the very essence of god now, here's a tough theological concept I'm going to throw at you. Feel free to chew on this before you come back to me with your questions or your comments, all right? In the beginning, the man was fine. He was good. There was no sin. There was no problem. God breathed life into him in a sense that this was the life breath of the creator. There's a spiritual nature to this as well as a physical nature. And so literally God is creating life where there was nothing. You know, that's the one thing that separates God from every other creator that's ever lived. The creator, God, simply said it will happen, and it did, and he made something from nothing. I can make all sorts of things if you give me enough of the right raw materials, but I can't make something from nothing. God can and so he makes the man basically from the substance of things that didn't exist until God created them. And then he breathes something of himself into this person. And now this person is a walking, talking reflection of God in so many words. 
until sin comes. And then he's, well, then he's got a little bit more in common with all the other animals on the earth. And if you think about it, the human condition, even today, even in our society, is always a struggle between living into the divine nature of our being or the animal nature of our being. Personally, I'm seeing more and more young people in our society gravitating towards the animal nature. And this is what happens when people distance themselves from God. The Holy Spirit is not there. Therefore, there is a spiritual nature that is starving for fuel when Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit on them. In effect, he's giving them a spiritual transfusion. He's replacing the dull, lifeless human bones and flesh and, and blood with an enlivened, spirit-filled, holy DNA. It's all happening outside of our perception. But when Jesus breathes on them, it's the same word that describes God breathing life into the first human. The life of God. Is it sinking in even a little just how hugely, profoundly significant this is? When Jesus breathes on them, he is changing their nature internally, spiritually. So that they have become, in a breath, sons and daughters of God like Jesus. Not little gods or anything. I just mean that through this act, Jesus has redeemed us and then invited us into the household of God which is how it all started, you know, in the beginning. Used to be they frolicked around in their birthday suits in God's garden. And God was there in the cool of the evening, walking around with them, hanging out with them, and then it all changed because of sin. And now Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Here comes your transfusion. And they're changed. Okay. Are you feeling a little bit like one of those apostles or disciples right now because you're trying to process something so huge? Well, we've got time to think this over because we're going to really hit this hard on Pentecost Sunday when we celebrate how the same thing that happened to those few people in that room will now be able to happen to anybody including us. But let's stop and think about Tom for a minute. Old Tom wasn't there that night. He'd been away for some reason. He was sitting Shiva down at the bar. I don't know. I can't tell you how he was doing it, but he wasn't there. And then he comes a week later and they have had time to think this over in their sitting Shiva. Now not only are they grieving and mourning what they thought was the death of, the death of their Savior, but now they're grieving their ignorance. They're grieving their, their sin. They're grieving their resistance. Their, the Holy Spirit is, is making them over from the inside out and they're processing all of this. And it's probably a really healthy way 
to do it. That's why a lot of people in this room could tell you that on a walk to Emmaus weekend or something, it all started to really sink in because, because sometimes we have to go and separate ourselves from the ordinary for a little while and be around other people who are doing the same thing intentionally in order to really start to make it all come together for us. They've had time to process what they've experienced and poor old Thomas has missed that opportunity. So no wonder he shows up a week later and he says, you know, what you're telling me is, out, is outrageous. It's the most insane thing I've ever heard. Do you know it's still that way today? There are a lot of people out there who are doing other things right now because they think what we're doing is irrelevant. And I don't fault them for that. That's just how it is. And so like Thomas, they simply am not ready to accept something so outrageously, profoundly different from what seems normal. And then Jesus appears to Thomas, and what does he say? Lord, help him absorb this. It's going to be tough. Peace be with you. And then he says, go ahead, Tom. Now, I want you to know that I think Thomas gets a bum rap and we mistreat him too much in retrospect because the fact is, is he was like everybody else who hears these outrageous and crazy things that Christians believe, which doesn't just include the story of God becoming a man and then becoming, uh, uh, you know, the savior of the world and then dying and rising again. It also includes our belief that somehow we know him and that we're born again. I mean, there's a lot for unbelievers to try to swallow. And I'm not mad at them about that. This isn't a war between us and them. They are people who don't know what we know. And until they are able to open their minds and hear and receive it, they're going to have questions. Nobody in that room was angry with Thomas. They were just saying, it's okay, Thomas. We were pretty darn confused ourselves a week ago. Oh, there's Jesus. He'll take care of it. And then... The first thing Jesus does is pray for him, put him at ease, treat him the same way he'd always treated him. And then he says, still need to do the touching thing or are you convinced? And Thomas does something that we haven't heard yet. He falls on his knees and he says, my Lord and my God. Do you know what that's like? Have you ever done that? I'm not asking you to say so one way or the other. I'm just telling you. This man has made the most profound confession of faith we've heard yet in this story. It took less time for him to be convinced than the others, it would seem. And it's important that you understand that it's probable that he doesn't have the Holy Spirit yet. And this is why it's important, because now it brings it around to us. Because we're all a lot like Thomas. We're people who need proof in order to believe but the truth is as saint anselm of canterbury said a long time ago sometimes we have to believe in order for the truth to be revealed and so thomas gave up his need for tactile evidence because he saw and he believed and he had faith that led him to say, my Lord and my God. 
And then we can assume all the other things happened. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in John's book, but these are written so that you may have life in his name. The Apostle John finishes the story by wrapping it up with a summary and then inviting you to do the same thing they've done. And that's what I want to invite you to do too. I want you to think for a moment about how hard it's been for you to make sense out of this gospel story that has changed so many lives, countless lives, because you've tried to scientifically examine it before entering into it as a matter of faith. And so you're like Thomas. I got to have proof. But somehow the sound of his voice penetrates your fear and your anxiety. And then you realize who you're dealing with here. And so then the door to your soul is open. The same one who didn't need to worry about whether the doors of the room were locked doesn't need to know whether the door to your soul is locked, and yet he honors that door. He disrespects the door to your house, but he doesn't disrespect the door to your soul. That one you have to open and let him in. And this is what Thomas did. And then you have to do the same thing that the apostles did. You have to grieve and mourn. You have to repent. You've got to recognize that there's so much about you that's incomplete without Christ and the Holy Spirit. Then you're ready to receive that spirit that changes the very nature of your being while you might still look the same on the outside. You've been made over on the inside. And when you receive that new life in the Holy Spirit, you can join Jesus in the work of proclaiming the good news. There's a verse in there that he says, and I'll wrap with this, but this is all so heavy, I just can't rush. There's a verse in there where he says, if you forgive their sins, their sins are forgiven, and if you withhold forgiveness, it's withheld in heaven. And that's been debated over the centuries, and it's been interpreted a lot of different ways. But I find that it's reasonable to conclude that this gracious, loving God is not going to withhold forgiveness for someone just because some person has withheld forgiveness. Look at the bag on the altar. It represents a lot of unforgiveness, I imagine. I also don't think that he's going to grant eternal life to someone based on whether a person decides whether they're worthy of it or not. If you take this and you put it in the context of the story as it has unfolded, what you will notice is, is that John is telling us that Jesus is sending us to be for the world what he was for the world, the instruments of God's grace. Therefore, because we have shared the gospel, lived the gospel, and have taken all the appropriate sacrificial steps associated with our own salvation. We are instruments of grace that can bring people to the forgiveness of God, or we can be blind to our role in it all and prevent people from hearing it, at least from us. What he's asking us to do is go as he has sent us in the same spirit in which he came to bring the good news of God's grace and love at all costs.
Have you lived this story yet? See, the Sunday after Easter is the day we have to really recognize that it's Thomas Day for all of us. Have you decided to profess him as my Lord and my God? I'd be happy to talk with you about that after the service. Just talk to me or get a hold of me this week. I'd be glad to come up here and pray for anybody, any day, if you just let me know. For now, let me finish with a word of prayer. Almighty God, I thank you for your word, for the amazing good news that Thomas proclaimed. Now let it change our hearts forever, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.